Hey everyone, happy Monday. Welcome back to another episode of the Hitchcock Minute, where each week our Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1959 Alfred Hitchcock-directed thriller North by Northwest, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm your host, I'm Alan Sanders. I am your co-host, Walt Murray. And normally you can find us kicking around... uh, God, I can't even speak (laughs) Normally you can find us kicking around the movies of Gene Wilder. That's what I meant to say. (laughs) One minute at a time ourselves over at the Wilder Ride, but we are in the midst of... The, uh, the opening here of Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest, we had the first five minutes last week with a lot of credits, and we were just getting to the Oak Room for his appointment. And he still has a lot on his mind, Walt, because he had told his secretary to go to make sure not to forget to call mom. And it occurred to him as the cab was driving away, whoa, whoa, she's not at home. Yeah, and, and kind of picking up on what we were talking about a little bit last uh, Friday, um, you know, this, of course, is a time before cell phones and anything like that. So if you needed to get hold of somebody... You either had to wait till they showed up at their house or go hunt them down somewhere. Right. And it's uh, it's interesting. We're going to get to in a minute. I had no idea that telegrams were faster than trying to get somebody to pick up the phone. I didn't either. Have you ever received a telegram? Never in my life. I've never been the recipient of a telegram. The only one I ever remember getting is when I was probably seven or eight. Uh, I was at my grandparents' house, and um, we got a telegram you know, sent to the family Letting us know that one of our nephews had been born. Oh, really? Our, I guess my cousin. A birth announcement via yeah, telegram. Yeah, my uncle was deployed, and uh, he was in the Navy. So we got a telegram from his ship letting us know that he had just received a telegram letting <laughs> him know that the baby was born. Okay, so <laughs> government government at work. Government at work, yeah. But I don't think I've ever We're going to let you know that he knows that now he knows he's having a kid. Precisely. There we go. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but I, I don't think I've ever gotten one otherwise. And I sure didn't know that you could do it just as a, you know, like around the city form of communication. Right. It feels uh, interesting here, that, uh, we'll, and we'll get to the line. Uh, this is kind of an interesting uh, quick meeting here, the way the framing is, because he's obviously meeting somebody who is introducing him to two other individuals who are already at the table. Right. Because only one guy stands up, uh, goes, hello, Roger, replies Weltner. So this is the guy standing up here. Roger Thornhill, Fanning Nelson. How are you? How are you? Larry Wade. How you? We got a little head start here, Mr. Thornhill. Oh, that won't last long. And we see the other two guys uh, reach over to then shake his hand. Um, is it interesting that, is the one guy hard of hearing? I, I think he is. And I, because he immediately, as soon as he stands up, he's holding his hand up to his ear. Right. And um, the only time you ever hear that or ever see that is um, when somebody is hard of hearing, which is kind of strange because when you see something like that in a movie, you kind of think, well, this is going to be an important detail for right. later. We're going to find out what this is, you know, uh, old war injury, lost yeah. his hearing somewhere, you know, in combat or whatever. But he just sort of put his hand out there as if like a little Lord radar dish to try to funnel yeah. the sound in. But then as soon as he goes to shake hands, takes his hand away, he seems like he can hear the conversation just fine. Yeah, and there's no mention here or later of any uh, any hearing issues. I'm wondering if it was the actor and he didn't realize he was doing it sort of just Could spontaneously. Out of habit. Yeah, because, uh, you know, you've got this shot here that as they sit, which is interesting, the, the composition of the shot. You've got the three martinis in a row. As if all three of these guys are on one side of the table, even though it's kind of in a curved area, Area, I guess. Well, I don't know. You've got one guy on the one end of the table, Cary Grant on his end. But it's like they've all been sitting there leaving the one seat open for Cary Grant for yeah. when he sits down. Well, I sometimes have trouble in crowded rooms hearing anything if there's a lot of talking going on. 
And you also notice after they sit down, he's kind of leaning in towards everybody else too. And uh, so I'm wondering if he does have some kind of, either the actor or that character. It'd be weird if it's the character only because, like you said, we never, I mean, out of this little moment here, we're never going to see these guys again. No, and it may have been something that ended up on the on the cutting room floor, or it may have just been the way that the actor was working that day. So, um, but yeah, and it does, it looks like they've kind of been sitting there a little while, and he's probably running a little bit late. I would imagine that he's probably the guy who's always five or ten minutes late to everything. I do love how they say, I hope you don't mind, we're a couple of martinis ahead of you. He goes, don't worry, I'll catch up. Yes. <laughs> don't don't worry about that. That won't take long. Yeah. Are you a martini drinker? I am not. I, I do like vodka by itself, but I've never been sort of the vermouth and gin uh, martini yeah. drinker. I've tried it. For some reason, it's one of the few alcohols I just don't like the taste of it. Yeah, I'm not a big fan either. It leaves a weird taste for me it, it almost it's to me it's almost more chemical the way that's, the way it tastes in my mouth too. yeah in fact the weird thing is my daughter the other day because she likes gin she made a mixed drink didn't tell me she goes here try this see what you think and i took one sip and i said this has gin in it she goes how can you tell yeah I'm like i can tell because i mean i'm so i know that's not a flavor i like so i can tell even small small amounts of it being used in a mixed drink i'm the same way it, it has that um it's kind of the same taste that diet soft drinks give me Oh, almost like that aspartame, yeah. that chemical mm-hmm. kind of feeling. Yeah. I, lo- I love bourbon, scotch, whiskey, vodka, tequila. I can beer. drink everything. Beer, wine. Something yeah. about gin. Gin and vermouth. Yeah. Even moonshine. I, I, I'm a real, I'm a big moonshine drinker. And you? I, I know that's a shock. <laughs> Wait a minute. But you'd think that somehow in, in all that stuff, there's some. there would have to be some kind of chemical mix that would be similar, but... I'm the same way. I just can't. I'm gonna have to I look up drink how gin. gin is made. I don't. I honestly don't know. I don't know either. But I, I, I do like a vodka on the rocks. I'll drink a vodka with a twist of lime if that's how they make it. I like almost anything vodka based. So I could do, I guess, a vodka martini. I've just never thought to go get a martini when I'm fine with vodka on the rocks. Yeah, yeah. You know? And and a lot of times I'll just go with you know whatever bourbon they have or oh, yeah know, whatever. Yeah, bourbon. Now, I like, okay, do you prefer yours neat? Do you like it with a little water or do you like it on the rocks? Because we're going to find out later. Uh, apparently, it's a big thing. A lot of, uh, He likes his whiskey with water. I'm either straight or on the rocks. Okay. Uh, but n- mostly just straight. I prefer, if I can get like a large, and I have these little uh, molds at home, I like the big sphere of ice. So it can get it cold really fast, but it takes a long time to melt. So you don't get a lot of diluted whiskey or, or bourbon or scotch. But at least because I like it cold. But yeah, yeah. I've too. tried the little stones. Have you tried those? The the the, the stones you kind of freeze. They're sort of like just rocks that no. are uh, carved that you so they don't dilute at all. They're just they get cold. Oh. You drop them in your drink and you just keep them in the freezer in between. Um, for me, it doesn't get the drink as cold as an ice cube does. Yeah, probably not. Well, and, uh, you know that's kind of the same thing with a frozen mug um, when you're having a beer that you. Uh, you freeze the mug to help it stay cold, but it really doesn't help that much. Mm-hmm. But it does add a little bit of, um, doesn't really change the taste, but I do like it better drinking it out of a frozen mug than out of a bottle. I am a, a, a bottle drinker. Uh, the wife and I both love uh, love drinking out of a bottle. When, when we go to a bar, now I don't mind getting it off the tap, but if we go to a bar and the guy, bartender's like, uh, draft or bottle, my wife will almost always go, well, unless it's a lot cheaper, let me do bottle. She just likes knowing she's got the bottle. No one's touched it. No one has to worry about yeah. washing on the inside. If it was washed properly, it's one of those things she's got a little, 
mild anxiety disorder when it comes to cleanliness. Yeah, I'm a little bit of a germaphobe too, so I, I get that. For me, I'm like, I'll take the dirty glass if yeah, that's all you right. got. I don't care. Yeah, like the the scene from Blazing Saddles where um, Anal Johnson Anal Johnson spits in the always kept things nice glass. and clean. I'm the bastard Anal Johnson. Just washing that glass all the way. <laughs> so um, I just looked up gin manufacturing real quick, and it, it says that it is a, ju- a juniper-flavored spirit made not via the redistillation of bio... Maybe you should have read this ahead of time. I did. <laughs> Biotanicals, but by simply adding approved natural flavoring substances to a neutral spirit of agricultural origin. Huh. That doesn't tell me anything. I don't know any I don't even know what you just said. Thanks, Wikipedia, you big jerks. So um but it says that uh, gin today is produced in subtly different ways from a wide range of herbal ingredients, uh giving rise to a number of distinct flavors. So it looks like it it's flavored with uh herbs or spices or something like that. But it has a uh a spirits chemical origin. Hmm. Well, I gotta ask you a question then. Since uh, neither one of us are big gin drinkers, but we do know gin. I mean, I've seen plenty of movies where you get a martini shake and not mm-hmm. stirred. Yep. How many of them are yellow or brownish? I don't think very many are. But I, I know that they will have a tint to them. Uh, they'll sometimes look like ginger ale. Hmm. Because these glasses, at least the one in front of Thornhill, when we get the shot kind of directly on him after he's been fidgeting looking at his watch, it didn't look like gin to me. I was like, no, that's it doesn't that's have that a yellowish look. gold. almost looks yeah. like tequila. Yep. Like the gold tequila. I would assume, I didn't catch how he ordered it, but I think they just put it in front of him, It was right? just there. Uh, there were three glasses there, the three guys that are already there. And when we do the reverse shot, there's like one in front of him. I don't think that's his, but the way it's set no, up with the camera right. shot is it looks like, okay, they've already got a drink for I him. thought that was his, but you're right, that's not his. So if they're, But he he does make a comment of saying that we're a couple ahead of you, and they are gin, gl- I mean, these are martini glasses. Yeah, definitely. So the only thing I could look up is there is such a thing called a golden gin, sometimes called a yellow gin. Right. And this is a practice as an as old as gin itself, according to this uh, article I'm reading here on, uh, where am I? What, what pace am I? Uh, this would be ginclassifications.com. Hmm. Uh, as practice as old as gin itself, originally wood barrels and vats were the most common containers for stocking, transport, and distribution of spirits. In the 19th century, this type of aged gin was called yellow gin due to the color acquired from contact with the wood of the barrels. That's interesting. Huh. That's all I can think of that must be. It must be just some kind of an aged gin, something because, and I have not, honestly, and I'm not a big, as I I made a comment, I'm not a big martini person. I've never seen a yellow martini. I've seen them, but I I guess I just didn't really think too much about them. About what's in them? Yeah, because I just wasn't that interested in gin. Now, he keeps fidgeting at his watch, and then when we get a reverse shot again, we see the guy who apparently is hard of hearing is yeah, doing the same little motion again. again, trying to like really look intently at Cary Grant, almost like he's trying to lip read. Yeah. And then notice over the shoulder, we're going to give a, a better shot in a second, we've got two guys kind of in an alcove or a little uh, hallway area. One guy's got his hat on inside, which seems a little odd. That seems like it would draw a little attention to itself. Yeah, it sure would. Another guy not wearing a hat. One, the, the guy with the hat's wearing kind of a blue-gray suit. The other one's wearing definitely a more of a regular gray suit, a light charcoal gray. Um, is this weird that he's that worried about making sure his mom gets word? Like, he's, he's, he's at a business meeting. He's already late getting there. There are two drinks ahead of him, which means, unless they're pounding, he was, they've been he, there for a little bit. Yeah, he's late. He's late. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of thought so, too. And I don't know if that was just their, um, 
you know, their way of showing the relationship that they had or just their way of making him fidgety and getting him to go um, up to the counter there. But uh, yeah, that's kind of odd. <laughs> kind of odd. Especially if they go often, you'd think they'd have a routine in place. So did, does this go back to what we were talking about last week, that he obviously has an overprotective, domineering mother? A I problem, think so. And yeah. likely a problem with where his uh, female relations comes from. I, I would think that's true. Because this is the weirdest thing. I have never been this uptight about, let, I mean, if I already knew we have dinner reservations, she t- told the secretary, just remind right. mother, we're going to have dinner here before tickets to the theater. Mom's got the itinerary. Right. What are you, what are you getting all bent out of shape for? Yeah, she, she'll get there fine. Especially as independent and hard-headed as she is. <laughs> Which we'll she, discover she'll later. She'll be fine. Well, yeah. she, he makes a point of saying, Oh, well, I just did something pretty stupid. I told my secretary to call mother, and I realized she won't be able to reach her where she is. Why not? Well, she's playing bridge at the apartment of one of her cronies. Your secretary? No, my mother. Yeah, that was a weird a weird throw-in. <laughs> well, I, I think, it, does that help describe what he thinks maybe about his mom and the people she hangs around with? And can't bring himself to call his mom something, but call who she hangs out with, one of her cronies. Yeah, that is kind of funny. I, I, I love Cary Grant's dialogue in this whole movie. He picks words like that. That are not everyday ordinary words. Well, and I particularly like those antiquated, old style words. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I'll throw those in conversations every once in a while, and my kids just kind of roll their eyes. But uh, I love those old, you know, twenties, thirties, forties phrases and words that come up, and uh, I kind of take that as one of those that it probably wasn't totally out of place at this mm-hmm. time, but it is definitely an awkward word for us or a, an unused word for us. All right, I've got a, I've got another question here for you, and, and maybe this is I don't live in the big city. I never have lived in an apartment in a big city. In fact, I've never had an apartment. I've either been in a townhouse or I visited friends' apartments. Is it normal that you would move into an apartment that doesn't have the telephones installed yet? Uh, that would be weird. Because this line, he says, "No, my mother." About you know, your, you know, when she says uh, she with one of her cronies, he goes, "Your secretary?" No, my mother. It's one of those brand new apartments, all wet paint and no telephone yet. One of those brand new apartments, all wet paint and no telephone yet. Yeah, that's that's weird. I mean, it's, weird. It, it, I mean, but it's a line in the movie. Yeah, it's, it's a Hitchcock movie. You would think that the lines are important. Is there such a thing as they would move people in without ever having a telephone connected? You know, maybe I guess if. Maybe it's one of those things of the phones will be connected next Tuesday or something. I, I do remember I've lived in a couple of apartments, um, but it's been a long time. You know, if it has, if he had said one of those old renovated buildings, they don't have the telephones in yet. Fine. You're in New York. Maybe this is built yeah. in the 1800s, early 1900s. It never really had the proper wiring. But he says it's a brand new apartment, all wet paint and no telephone. I yet. would think that uh, you would think they would have to have the telephone hooked up. It's almost like they realize they kind of wrote themselves maybe into a corner, and so they just yeah. use this one line as a way to explain why we yeah. don't get to mom. Yep, I, that you may be right. Because this is not a um, – it, it seems like this storyline is a huge p- piece of the, the movie, but it really is just a vehicle to get them to where they're going. And uh, so, yeah, they may have. They may have. And writing yourself into a corner is uh, – it's a difficult thing to get out of. Well, something that I was discovering discovered while we were taking a break for the weekend before coming back is I started doing a little bit more background research on uh, Ernest Lehman, the mm. the author, uh, the scriptwriter with this right. story. Apparently, this story actually came out of an idea from a journalist who just sent a telegram to Hitchcock talking about mistaken identity, and it was just sort of very, huh. very loosely based on, uh, on what we'll have here. Uh, but the way by by the end of the movie. When Hitchcock got paid, he gave the reporter $1,000 for the idea. 
But with Layman, apparently what that what was going on, and he said, I felt like I didn't have the whole story. So I'm writing pieces and sending them to Alfred, and then we'd have arguments about, okay, so then what happens next? And then, so what happens next? And he said, I never had, it's the first time I ever wrote a script where I never had a sense of the beginning, the middle, and the end. We knew where it was going to end because Hitchcock thought it'd be fun to have a chase on Mount Rushmore. That was just right. an idea. How do we get there? How do we get mistaken identity? So I'm thinking, based on his own words, that he was writing as they were going without really a clear idea of how to get there. That he was just writing scenes, writing scenes, writing scenes. And if you, as we watch the movie, it feels kind of like one vignette after another. Mm-hmm. We've got your opening office scene. Now we've got the meet in the bar scene. Then we're going to have, you know, the you know ride in the car to whoever's asking him, which we're going to get to later this week. No, no spoilers, but he goes on a little car ride with someone. He shows up in someone's house. It's almost like one little tiny vignette after another thinly connected with, you know, Cary Grant being the kind yeah. of the through line. Yeah, it's almost like stepping stones. Mm-hmm. So, And I do know that they had no idea how to get to the end until they were talking about the, the scene, which will come later for some of our friends with the Movies by Minutes community, when they have to uh, stage what looked like a shooting. And I'll just leave it at that. Right. But that idea hit both uh, Lehman and, and Hitchcock. They were just talking, and all of a sudden it dawned on one of them that uh, agents, uh, secret agents in the Cold War era, would often either actually assassinate another agent to prove that they're not another agent, Mm -hmm. or they would do something, some kind of subterfuge. So as soon as that popped in his head, he's like, I knew exactly how to write the third act. Yeah, and this was actually written during the Cold War. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Well, it's referenced in the script later. Yeah, so so this is kind of at the the height of the spy uh, hysteria, and then, of course, leads to whole genre of of books and movies which goes back to what i was saying last week before there was james bond there was roger thornhill yep that's right that's right so um yeah and he he really does have you know when you talk about mistaken identity he does have that presence that you would expect a spy to have Mm -hmm. even though most spies don't but what spy is going to admit okay you caught me i'm a spy. right yep oh yeah yep hands up i'm i'm caught so while they're fidgeting, he says, I've got to go, uh, maybe I can send off a message to her. We have to pay really close attention here because you said you missed it on your first watching. Yes, I did. When we do the, uh, the next reverse shot, he's still looking at his watch. We're back to the martini glass in front of him. We notice sort of the back of a page boy, and he's in the background saying, Oh, my mother. Well, this brand new apartment's all wet paint and no telephone yet. Perhaps if I sent her a telegram. George Kaplan. Boy. Mr. Kaplan, Kaplan. So as soon as you hear that, he says, actually, Mr. George Kaplan. Thornhill's not paying attention. Mm-hmm. He just turns over his shoulder, goes, oh, boy. And he, he wants the bellboy or whatever role this guy's playing to come over because he's got a message. Right. That is all it took. That one little line of first the bellboy asking for a Mr. George Kaplan and then Thornhill, without even thinking, raising his hand and saying, boy. Yeah. Calling him over. Totally in his own world. And then that piece going on completely separately in its own world. And then the two collapsing together. Yeah. And in fact, to to make us aware that that is an important piece of the movie, it goes by in the blink of an eye. Yeah, it does. If if you stop to look down at your phone during that moment or if somebody dog runs and you're like, shut up, stop barking. And you miss that. Yeah, I'm sure that's exactly You probably would have been lost the rest of the first, the first third, at least of the movie. Yeah. I well, and I kept going, well, wait a minute, how did they get him confused? How did, <laughs> how did that happen? And we know that Hitchcock wants us to be very attuned to the fact of those lines prior, because as soon as it comes back to a reverse shot, 
we get this really weird, almost a super fast pan and then dolly in to the two guys that we saw over their shoulders. And now they're paying specific attention to what's going on inside the Oak Room. Yeah, that was kind of a cool tool that they use there to get get you focused on the right guys. And there's there's no doubt we're supposed to pay attention. And as, just as the camera gets close, they're both staring. We get a shot, I guess, from their point of view now because mm-hmm. it looks like we're looking into the Oak Room. We see the bellboy who's been calling for Mr. George Kaplan walks over and now it comes back to these two guys and he whispers over his shoulder. Kaplan. So he's repeating to his buddy, that's Kaplan. Yep. Like, wait a minute. So they just assumed. Yep. It's like we in that's the audience him. and everybody else around. Now, George, you know, George, uh, Roger doesn't have any clue. Uh, totally oblivious. You know, he's so, and I love that. The, the fact is now that you go back, he kept fidgeting, looking at his watch, looking at his watch. You realize he wasn't listening in the room. He wasn't no. paying attention. He was so worried about getting a word to his mom that it just passed him by that this kid was asking for a George Kaplan. Yeah, what's the new phrase that everybody's using um, to be present? He was not being present. No, he wasn't very present in the situation. He was somewhere else. Uh, We get then back over to the table, and Thornhill decides to say, I've got to get off a wire immediately. Could you send it for me if I write it out for you here? Oh, I'm not permitted to do that, sir, but if you'll follow me. Would you excuse me, gentlemen? Go right ahead. This is fantastic. This is totally plausible. Now, in most hotels, you would assume whatever the guest wants, I'll do it. Sure. I love they slip in this line. Well, I'm not permitted to do that, sir, but if you'll follow me. Gets him out of the room Yep. very quickly. It's plausible enough. They're like, okay, well, maybe we're at that point of privacy. I doubt it's a privacy thing. No, but it's probably just, you know, he's the guy who's helping people in that room or he's the bellboy or whatever Mm -hmm. his job is to be the bellboy his job is not to deal with telegrams right so he's going to show him he's at least going to take him over to him yeah i'll escort you to where you go to actually send your telegram thornhill looks at the other men and says will you excuse me and larry wade says go right ahead thornhill then follows the bellboy out of the oak room right through where the two men were standing and the guys in the room have no idea because the way the room is situated, their backs are to where that other room is. Mm-hmm. They're not paying attention. If, if the chairs had been reversed in any way, if they had been seated in a different spot, they might have caught any action going on in that room. But because their backs are all to that area where now Thornhill's going, once again, perfectly staged yep. and crafted that those folks are going to be completely oblivious to what's going to happen next. Yeah, and they know that he's kind of got a lot on his mind anyway, so they're, you know, any... Oddity might be written off just as him being kind of wrapped up in his own world. Mm-hmm. He does, uh, and I guess this is just typical of New York paging people or uh, paying people, but here's this kid who's not going to help him actually send the telegram. He's just going to point him to the right door. And you see Thornhill, you don't ever see his hand, but it looks like he's giving him a tip. Right. Yep. There you go. Thank you for your Yeah, I noticed that. And, and that's, uh, I, I've never been to a hotel where the expectation was you tip everybody for everything. So. Well, this is the Oak Room. <laughs> yeah, it is the Oak Room. You're right. You're right. But uh, yeah, a different time, different culture. Uh, if you notice, when he asks, could you excuse me, gentlemen, the one guy's still listening, kind of like with his hands by his ear, but not quite as obvious anymore. Just kind of got his fingers up around his ears uh, as if he can't hear you know, or wants to make sure he hears clearly what's going on. Yeah. Yep. He uh, And that is such an odd thing because it it is now it's now become distracting to mm-hmm. me a little bit. It, it, it was very distracting for me, and I couldn't figure out why... Why is Hitchcock doing that? And unless we're supposed to maybe, let's, let's, let's see if we can justify it. We've got maybe one person that could have heard what was happening in the room, but because he's hard of hearing, mm-hmm. the other guy's in the middle of a conversation, the middle guy, we never get anything out of him. So maybe it's just supposed to add that it's so hard to hear in there 
that they wouldn't have noticed if anybody left or was being escorted out. Yeah, it could be. I don't know. I think it's a leap, but... Well, and, and in a place like that, I would imagine there's also a lot of mind your own business. You know, you're you're not paying attention to what's going on at the table next to you. That's not cool. So, um, so yeah, so uh, him get once he breaks that door line, I don't think anybody's paying any attention to what's going on. Yeah, I agree. And the the minute here is going to end with him walking toward camera. We know he's actually walking out of the room. It's the same point of view shot from the two guys that were just sitting there mm-hmm. who realized, oh, this must be Kaplan. And we know he's not Kaplan. He knows he's not Kaplan, but they don't. So where's Kaplan? Where's Kaplan? Where is Kaplan in all of this? I, I keep wondering that. Uh, all right, so I know this is kind of like kind of quick, but we're gonna be start. We're gonna be cruising through these now because yeah. some of these minutes are so much going on, and some of the minutes that'll be later in the movie, there could be the entire ten minutes that one group has of nothing but just watching a car approach, right? And another <laughs> or car a plane going. fly from yes. beyond the mountains. By the way, that whole scene, I wish we had the crop duster know, scene. That I is such too. a good, good thing. Um, I want to leave at least, unless you've got something else. Do you have anything in your notes no. for this minute? Mm-hmm. Um, I want to leave something that uh, Hitchcock loved telling people over and over and over again, the difference between shock and suspense. And it's a great, and and we have it here for the audience because we're aware of a piece of information that the, that the characters are not aware of. And here's how, here's how uh, Hitchcock used to always say it. He said, if you've got two people sitting at a table, right? Like you and I, we're here, we're recording, Mm -hmm. we're we're recording a podcast. We're sitting there just chatting. And the, the scene is us talking just like we are now. And suddenly a bomb goes off. Well, we've got about five or 10 seconds of shock. Like, oh my God, a bomb just went off. Are they okay? Did they die? Who put it there? That's shock. He said, but the audience deserves the information if you want to create suspense. Mm. So what we have to do is prior to Walt and Alan sitting down at the microphones is we need to see a quick shot of somebody walking in with the bomb and putting it underneath the desk. Now we know the bomb is there. The characters come in, they start talking, same conversation. Now the audience has a different feeling. Now we're aware. Why are you guys sitting there analyzing a movie one minute at a time? Don't you know there's a bomb underneath the desk? And when is this bomb going to go off? Yeah. And that was his view of suspense. So for us, he's already laying the foundation of suspense right here with just this little moment because we catch it. We know there's people listening. They think he's Kaplan. He's got no idea of that information. That creates heightened tension for Mm -hmm. us in the audience going, well, wait a minute. What's going to happen next? And I love it. I love how quickly and easily and plausibly this mistaken identity is is, is put into the early part of this movie. Yeah. And it really kind of launches it because so far we're kind of trying to get a feel for what's going on and, and figure it out. And all of a sudden we're going to get the, okay, they have totally mistaken who this guy is. And, and now the plot thickens. All right. Well, that's all I've got for this minute in my notes as well, because this scene is going to continue right along into tomorrow. So uh, you don't have anything else. Um, Let me go ahead and uh, give it to you to let people know where they can learn more about us. The best place to learn more about us is on our website at thewilderride.com. You'll find all the other stuff that we've worked on before from our minute by minute uh, movies, which were Blazing Saddles and... um, and Young Frankenstein, we're also about to get rolling on the great movie and, in my mind, underrated movie, Silver Streak. And that'll be coming out here in the next few months, uh, early 2020. We also have done some other movies blocked in other ways, you know, 20 minutes at a time or, or whatever. So uh, everything from Christmas Vacation to Poltergeist and a few others. So check all that out. Also, our bios are there if you, for some reason, want to figure out who we are. 
and everything else we're doing. Also, you might want to check out our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash the wilder ride. Follow us there and then immediately hit the button that says join group, answer a couple real quick questions, and uh, you'll join our listeners group and get to join in with all of our other listeners, uh, giving input on movies and stuff like that. We've had a lot of Star Wars uh, discussion lately with the new Star Wars movie coming out. So uh, just no politics, no new, you know, no uh, crazy other stuff. Just fun. Just fun and entertainment. Yeah, so, uh, fun, entertainment, there. crazy things, funny memes, things like that. As long as you leave the politics and the religion at the door, there's plenty of places for that. Not that you and I don't mind engaging in that. No. That's just not the right venue. Absolutely. And if you want to follow on social media as well, you've got The Man on Washington's Nose. That's the name of the Facebook group. Or on Twitter, at Hitchcock Minute. Don't forget... The Hitchcock Minute Podcast is on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, or you can go to the main website, HitchcockMinute.com. We'll come back tomorrow, Tuesday, for another edition of the Hitchcock Minute, where we will start off the minute with Thornhill heading to the front desk at the plaza, and we're going to end with Thornhill saying, uh, they're going to think I'm awfully rude. I mean, uh, couldn't we stop off at a drugstore for a moment? So that, we'll have to find out what mid-conversation point he's at in the middle of the next minute, Come back tomorrow for more of this, the Hitchcock Minute. I thought we were doing Psycho. This must be a mistaken identity. It's uh, it's Hitchcock. I thought it was the man in the rearview mirror. Mm. Or was it Vertigo? I'm feeling a little sick. I'm, I'm a little but that vertigo. might be just you. Yeah, it's too much gin. That or smell. <laughs> Wherever you are. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome. <laughs> this is going well. And oh, let's see, I misplaced my spot. There we go. Let's try that again. Hey, everyone. Happy Monday. Welcome back to another episode of the Hitchcock Minute, where each week our movies by Minnesota. <laughs> I'm just doing so well here. <laughs> Where each week our movies by minutes hosts examine the 1959 Alfred Hitchcock directed thriller North by Northwest, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm your host. I'm Alan Sanders. I am your co-host, Walt Murray. And normally you can find us kicking around. Will, uh, God, I can't even speak. <laughs> normally you can find us kicking around the movies of Gene Wilder. That's what I meant to say. <laughs>